Hello, and welcome to Transformation Teaching's Koan of Illness interview series. A koan is an essentially unsolvable puzzle that leads spiritual aspirants to a deeper reality. Chronic illness is a koan, and it too has the potential to lead us to deeper understandings. In this series, we're bringing you the voices of people who can lead us into deeper perspectives and shed their light on this koan of illness. Any questions you might have about the interview or the topic, you can write to me at lynn at transformationteaching.com. Today, we're going to be talking with Corey DeVos. Corey DeVos is the proverbial man behind the curtain. He is editor-in-chief of Integral Life, as well as managing editor of KenWilber.com. He has worked for Integral Institute, Integral Life, since the spring of 2003, and has been a student of integral theory and practice since 1996. So welcome, Corey. Glad to have you here. Hi, Lynn. So glad to be here. Great. So you come at um, illness a little differently than some of the other people we've had on this series, like me. You're, in addition to everything else that you do, you're also a, a caregiver. So I wonder if you could just start out telling us a little bit about how you came into that role, what happened, what's, what's going on with your life. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I've got a, a daughter who's five and a half years old. Her name is Evelyn Nima DeVos, or Evie for short. And uh, Evie was born with um, a birth defect known as biliary atresia, uh, which basically means she was born with uh, malfunctioning bile ducts. Mm. Um, and what that means is basically her liver was unable to filter her blood and keep her blood clean. So she was diagnosed with this when she was about three months old. Um, at first, you know, it, it, it's, you know, we, we, we have some sort of gallows humor. We used to call her a, a little Simpson baby because she, she came out a bit yellow and, uh, <laughs> and that yellow never really went away. And for, you know, and, and honestly, for the first few months, we just thought she had sort of a darker complexion skin, sort of an olivey complexion. And, uh, you know, eventually started seeing the yellow coming into her eyes. So Ooh. brought her to, uh, her doctors and they ran a bunch of tests. And as it turned out, she had this condition called biliary atresia. Um, so again, she was diagnosed when she was about three months old, and that began a very long and intense journey uh, for our family. Mm. So she, um, you know, really, I, I think that the most intense period was sort of the year, year and a half following her, her diagnosis. So uh, the first thing that they did was they attempted to do a surgery known as a Kasai surgery, which is sort of something they like to do in these cases uh, in hopes that they can prevent the need for a liver transplant. And what they actually do is, you know, they, they open you up and they basically attach your intestine directly to the liver, thus bypassing the bile ducts uh, in hopes that that's, you know, sort of enough to get the system working again. Uh, and Evie, so Evie had that, had that surgery and in her case, it, it, didn't, it didn't take. Mm. Um, it wasn't successful. However, it was successful enough to buy us a lot of time. So mm -hmm. we ended up getting onto the transplant list. The average kid is on a transplant list for something like three months, I think is the national average. She was on for nine months. Oh my. Yeah, wow. it was a long time. It was, it was very protracted. Um, but it was ultimately good because we were able to get her really healthy. We were able to, you know, fatten her up. Mm -hmm. um, point where you know, when when we actually got the call that that you know her organ had arrived, 
she was, you know, nice and chubby and fat and, and ready for her surgery. And, and here she is. I see her. <laughs> Can you say hi? Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm, I'm grabbing my unicorn, white unicorn. Yeah, she's grabbing oh. her white unicorn. That's good. Uh, there's a little uh, appearance from the girl herself. So, yeah. Uh, where was I? Yeah, it bought, it bought her a lot of time, and we were able to get her nice and healthy uh, in preparation for the big surgery, which was her liver transplant, uh, which she received uh, in June of the following year, after that nine months of, of being on the list. Yeah. So it was, it's, it's been a fairly um, intense ride. Uh, a baby all- that young, it must be just terrifying to to have them go through all this and you can't communicate really you can't you don't know what they need it must be really really hard yeah and you know it's it's um it's every parent's worst nightmare to be told that you know their their child has a birth defect um a, a chronic birth defect and if you know things don't go right we could lose her um you know we we we're now plugged into a community of families um who struggle with similar challenges and their stories um, aren't always as positive as ours has been. Um, And that's, you know, that's, that's, that's tough. That's really tough. Um, And, you know, which, which sort of leads me, uh, you know, one of the the things I wanted to say to you, Lynn, is I, I find the title of this offering of this program, the Koan of illness is just such a, um, the perfectly apt description. Um, it's, it's, it's really, it summarized my own experiences sort of walking through all of this with my fiance and, and with Evie where, you know, when you're on this sort of path, it's, it's really just one contradiction after the other. It's, it's one paradox after the other. And, um, and that can make it really difficult to navigate. There's, you know, there's a tendency for us human beings, our ordinary human beings to, you know, really try to simplify these paradoxes or choose one of the polarities and, you know, stick with that or just kind of distill this into something that's more understandable or approachable or, or manageable. And, you know, I, I, I think that um, courses like this, programs like this really help people, um, helps people find the resiliency I think they need to sit with the paradox, to remain present to sort of all the polarities at play, and ultimately to let the contradictions, um, you know, instead of shying away from them, to really let them break you open. Mm. I think that that's, that's, you know, chronic illness is gonna break you one way or the other. Um, I think that there's sort of good ways to break and probably you know, some more debilitating ways to break. And I think that um, allowing yourself to, uh, allowing these contradictions, these paradoxes to, to break your heart open into sort of new layers of meaning, wisdom. Um, yeah, I, 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 I feel like that that's, that, that that's one of the best healing paths that we could, we could take. One of the best, one of the healthiest orientations, one of the healthiest postures we can try to take when we're, when we're dealing with this, either in ourselves or in people around us. Yeah, I think this idea of not knowing, of not having an answer, because I know I've, I've been a caregiver for my son for 
over 30 years now. And I just wanted to run. I was going to find the answer. That was my initial start on this. Um, and that had a lot of um, not being willing to stay open to the not knowing and wanting to close kept, kept me, I think, um, locked in in a way. And it didn't allow my heart to open in the same way because it was, it was all about task. It was all about focus. It was not about the experience. Right. So, yeah, you know, to, it took me longer than you <laughs> to get to the place. Well, and yeah, yeah, I, want to be, I, really, I want to be very clear, this is an ongoing process. <laughs> yes. I, you know, I, I can say these things now and sort of try to put a nice little capstone in our experiences. But obviously, when you're, you know, when you're, you're not really walking through it, you're kind of being dragged through it. You yes. know? And yeah. Yeah. And it's always changing. So whatever problem you had this year, somehow morphs into another problem next year. That's it, right. It, it never stops shifting. So it's, it reminds me of a wicked problem. Ken Wilber talks about wicked problems, um, that it's always evolving and there are always different people involved. There are always different causes. There are always different possible solutions. And, and you learn, I think, to ride this wave uh, in a way. Um, yeah. and live with this koan and it does it's amazing what it reveals to you i mean it, it's thoroughly changed my entire life yeah no i i yeah that's 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 really well said that's really well said um and i was thinking you know maybe maybe one of the things we could do with this conversation today is you know because because you really got me reflecting um just about the nature of these contradictions and you know i i, I can identify you know geez a half dozen or so that um have been central for us and i and i and i think have you know, if they haven't sort of ripened into some sort of wisdom yet, I mean, I can, I can feel sort of that process happening. I mean, it, look, it's going to take us our entire, you know, lives to really fully metabolize these experiences. Um, if, if, if we ever can, you know, if there's ever such thing as, as it being fully metabolized, as you say, it's ongoing, it changes, um, it mutates, you know, with, with, with in Evie's case, you know, we, we got, it's, it's got a happy story, a happy ending so far. You know, yeah. she got a transplant, her skin turned from yellow to, you know, the pink hue that she has today, literally overnight. Um, her, her recovery has been, you know, nothing short of, of amazing. Um, she's had a few rejection episodes, three rejection episodes only one of which was really major to the point where we had to hospitalize her for another you know 10 days two weeks or so uh, that was an interesting one too because they actually um to to stop her immune system from attacking her new liver they actually had to inject her with plasma from rabbit blood oh my yeah it's it's, it's incredible um that actually killed off all of her white blood cells throughout her entire body so that it could basically restart the engine oh. um, and, and basically restart the engine in a way that the body doesn't perceive this new organ as being a threat. Um, that was intense. Very scary. Um, and very was, scary. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And, it, and, and that's, that's one of the paradoxes that we'll get to later is uh, yeah. the beauty and the terror and how really sort of hand in hand those 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 two things are oh i love that the beauty and the terror i mean we could start talking about that i mean yeah man i i i see that i see that there's so much fear there's so much fear that goes along with illness and then when it's your child it's it's, it's almost doubled because you can't 
do anything about it. And, and there is the terror, what's going to happen to them? What's, what's happening to them now? Why is this you know, here? What is it? So many of these chronic illnesses, we don't even know what causes them. That's right. Yeah, no one knows where why no one knows where biliary atresia comes from. Mm. They don't know oh. if it's genetic. They don't know if it's environmental. They, they they don't know. Oh, and I would have thought that might have been one they actually knew something, but no, no. Yeah. So there you are in the midst of that. But then the what it does for your heart and your caring and your family relationships and things like that, it does bring something of beauty. I I I think Kubler. Ross said something about, I have never known a person of depth who has not gone through some deep, difficult experience. And, yeah. and I, you know, in some ways I can be grateful, even though I would never have wished this on him, never have wished it on, on me either. Um, but it, it has brought depth into our, our relations and depth into our thinking, depth into our hearts as a result. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, um, it's it's sort of the nature of fragility itself, you know. This this fragility really does lead to new depths. Um, it, it leads to resiliency. It mm-hmm. leads to you know a tremendously tender appreciation for sort of this limitless beauty that actually comes from impermanence. Mm-hmm. Um, it opens your eyes, you know. And and in Evie's case, you know, her middle name Nima. Um, it's it's. Sanskrit actually for the sun and uh, she she was named that basically because when we're driving to the hospital when she was you know when it was time for her to to be born um, it was it was really early morning uh, on a Thursday morning and we're driving down in a beautiful boulder day and the the sun was reflecting off of the boulder flat irons and just a absolutely gorgeous way it was it was it was sublime um, and obviously I'm already in a state cause I'm about to meet my daughter and yeah. this, you know, the, the stillness of the mountains with the sort of fractal reflections of the sun. It was, it was absolutely gorgeous. And, and so that was the middle name that we gave her. And if you've ever seen the Boulder Flatirons, which I know, you know, you and Jose have, uh, they look, you know, on the one hand, they're massive and they're permanent, you know, they're just, they're always there you know i always like to think of it as like the mountains are meditating for oh. us <laughs> over yeah. us you know yeah. with us um and they're, they're always there and yet you know for all that permanency they're always changing every season they look different every every day they look different every moment they look different depending on how the sun is hitting them and glinting off them so it's you know they're massive and they're permanent but they're always changing and every time i see these mountains today with evie next to me i just feel this tremendous gratitude that i get to you know share this moment with her that 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 she um was able to stick around and um you know share this beauty with me and that i get to see these things through her eyes and Mm -hmm. i you know i know that you know everyone loves their kids obviously We've got billions of years of evolution behind us, programming us to love our children. And yet something like this happens. Um, and it's, you know, it's not that it gives you like parental superpowers or anything like that, but it helps you to slow down and appreciate those little moments that really do accumulate into, um, you know, this, this sort of beautiful mosaic that you share with this person. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful 
for that, for sure. Yeah, I think knowing about the impermanence, and you know, we live in Sedona, where it's the same thing, and I've often commented, God paints me a new picture every single day, even when I look out the same window, <laughs> it's exactly the same. I mean, it's a, a completely different picture. But that that fragility, knowing there is only this moment to see that particular vision, or there's only this moment with my child to, to relate. Um, and the next moment will be, will be different. It'll be wonderful too, but, but it really does focus you in on now. And I think that's another thing that's helped me is with presence, uh, being, being fully present. Yep. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's well said. And, you know, and you, you had mentioned earlier the, um, you know, the helplessness that you feel this, Mm -hmm. this was, you know, as her dad, you know, as, as, as the guy who like, oh, there's a problem. How can I fix it? How can I fix it now? You know, this, this was unfixable. And I had to, you know, and that was another one of these paradoxes that, you know, I, my role is to be her strength, to be her support, um, even while feeling just completely helpless and vulnerable. And in fact, you know, it was interesting because the day we got uh, the phone call that her, her organ had arrived, her liver had arrived. It was actually just a few days before I was about to get a number of tests to, um, to be a living donor. So they were going to take half of my liver, a lobe of my liver, and give it to her. We're the same blood type and all that. Now, these hospitals prefer not to do that because they're putting, they'd rather use, um, you know, what they call cadaveric organs, um, organs from, from, you know, people who have passed away. Uh, because if they do a, a, a live donor, uh, that's, that's putting two people at risk. So they always prefer not to, but with Evie, it was taking so long for an organ to come that my doctors really, I mean, they spent months, months hassling our insurance providers to get them to allow the procedure. And I, we finally got permission and I was scheduled to get worked up. And then literally the, the next week they were going to take half my liver and give it to hers. And then we got this call. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, and this is my own, you know, um, ego here. In, in the face of all that helplessness, I felt sad when the organ call came. I felt sad that I wasn't the one, that I couldn't be the, the hero. Yeah. It's a ridiculous thing to say. It's, it, 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 it's, it seems absolutely ridiculous. It's narcissistic. It's, you know, but I also give myself a little bit of, forgiveness for feeling human emotions uh in the face of again just all that helplessness you know i spent you know a a good year year and a half just not able to do anything and finally here was an opportunity for me to do something um but i didn't you know in the end i didn't have to be that hero and that's awesome that's actually better for evie she ended up getting um you know the liver of from a child um which is another one of those paradoxes. Yes. While we were, you know, waiting for the organ to come, it was morbid. It was sad. I'm, I'm literally waiting with bated breath for some stranger to die. Yes. You know, her, her life literally um, depended on another, in this case, another child's death. And, um, you know, this is something that we're only beginning, again, to wrap our hearts and our minds around. Um, it's the deepest koan 
that we know that's come out of this. Um, we'll, spend, we'll spend the rest of our lives, maybe multiple lifetimes, wrapping ourselves around this. And, you know, in terms of Evie, she's five and a half years old right now. She's only just begun this process. Um, you know, my heart really breaks when I think of just how much further she still has to go. Um, she doesn't know all the details. She, she doesn't yet know that, you know, another child died in order for, for her mm -hmm. to, to have this, this shot at life. She's only beginning to learn what death is. And that's a tough nut to crack with a, with a five-year-old. Um, yeah, so, you and know, you're I, living this through an adult, that's you. Yeah. And then you've got to live it through her eyes and how it's going to be as she grows up. I mean, that, that's going to be really incredible because yeah, she it, will have her own reactions. She will have yeah. her way of seeing it. And you will have the, the burden or the joy of in some way sharing that with her from your perspective. I mean, how amazing, how, how rare it is for a parent and a child to have a conversation of that depth. That's right. No, that's right. The, the, the amount of intimacy that it creates um, with our family, with my fiance and I, with my daughter and us um, is, is incredible. And the flip side of that sort of morbid sadness on, on, on the one side is, you know, I, I know that as she, you know, begins that process of, again, digesting these experiences, all of which occurred to her before she even started forming memories. Yes. So a lot of this is on the level of storytelling for her, you know, all she has from this is this beautiful rainbow scar, you know, going across, across her belly, um, which I tell her every day is the most beautiful scar I've ever seen. In my life. Oh, uh -huh. it, it, it truly is. Um, but you know, the flip side of this is all of this is going to be rocket fuel for this kid. And, you know, as, as an integralist, as, you know, someone who really tries to pay close attention to, you know, things like, developmental unfolding and the many, many, many things that can go wrong with that developmental unfolding. I am so tremendously grateful that we haven't seen any major issues coming out of this. I mean, she was, she was fed through a tube for the first year and a half, two years almost of her life. You know, she didn't have, um, you know, she wasn't able to eat solid food. And so for a lot of kids, this turns into, you know, uh, speaking, disorders, eating disorders, things like that, because this oral stage of development gets, you know, a little bit gummed up. And she hasn't, you know, had any of those issues. She hasn't had, she's had a few nervous tics every now and again, when things get a little bit overwhelming for her, but those, you know, you just kind of let them smooth out over time. There's been no real um, residue from all of this. Um, other than, you know, what's surely sort of amassing within her, her interiors. But, you know, looking at how she's thriving today and how healthy she is, you know, that's another one of these koans. For our family, receiving this news was worst case scenario, right? Worst case scenario. I remember, you know, when we were getting her worked up and getting all the exams done, I was researching one night. This was, this was the day before we got sort of the confirmation that yes, she has biliary atresia. Yes, she's most likely going to need a liver transplant. I was I was researching the machine that we were, you know, bringing her to the hospital um, for them to use for mm -hmm. her, where they basically inject a little bit of dye in the blood, and then they're able to track where where the blood flow is going, and they were using that to determine is there any blood flow going from her liver into her digestive tract. 
I knew that night just by researching the machine why they were doing this test and how this would turn out. Um, and this was the night before. And, you know, not that that did anything to prepare me, but, you know, it, it, it really, that's, that's when sort of the hammer dropped. And I was like, we are dealing with the worst case scenario here. My daughter might die. There's a damn good chance my daughter might die. Wow. Um, which is, again, it's, it's, it's impossible. I could, you know, like, it's, that's, that's what my brain is screaming at me, and yet the rest of my brain can't accept it. It's, it's no, that's impossible. She'll, my, my daughter will never die. You know what I mean? Yes. So it was, it was a worst case scenario for us. And yet the way this all turned out, this, what her, her challenges, her path through this was a best case scenario. It was a best case scenario. She got her transplant. She's thriving today. She's had minimal complications. She, you know, she's, she's going to be on immunosuppressant most likely for the rest of her life or hopefully until, you know, um, Western medicine continues to evolve. But there again is another one of those paradoxes. If I was born with this condition, I wouldn't be here today. I was born in 1977, which is when the very first liver transplant ever happened, which by the way, the patient died on the table. Um, you know, so it's, it's, this is, we, we live in a, in a time of miracles, medical miracles. Um, yes, we do. And at the same time, everybody complains about the medical system with yeah. good reason. Both are true. Again, we've got that polarity. It's very yep. true. So grateful for modern medicine. I was oh. sitting at the table with three friends, four friends, <clears throat> um, and my son, and none of us would have been here today if it had not been for modern medicine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and these places in particular, you know, children's hospital, geez, you can't spend any time at a children's hospital without walking out a completely transformed human being mm. just by, just by like osmosis, you know, I mean, you spend any time there and you are, you are seeing the miracles and the nightmares. I mean, you are seeing the full spectrum of human emotion and human experience. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, first off, it's absolutely gorgeous buildings. I mean, the buildings themselves, this, this one that we went to uh, in Aurora, Colorado, it's just gorgeous. The architecture makes you feel at ease walking in. Oh, how beautiful. Yeah, it's, you know, massive windows, so much light coming in. The lobby is big and expansive and just, it's just a beautiful place. Um, and, you know, the very fact that a place like Children's Hospital exists and is staffed by these incredible healers. I mean, the medical team that was taking care of her was, was just phenomenal. I, I, I owe them everything. I owe them everything. Um, and, it, again, it's impossible to spend any time there without just breaking open. And I, re, I remember, you know, when, when we were in the process of this, I remember I was doing so much Tong Len for Evelyn. Oh. Um, that I'm half surprised my own liver didn't explode in my body. <laughs> I, I, was, I was trying to take it all in. And I, you know, and yet when I tried to sort of expand that outside of just our, the walls of our room and to include the rest of the hospital, it was too much. It was too much voltage. You know, I got like fried by it. It was too much intensity and too much sadness and tragedy and joy. I couldn't, I couldn't contain it. It was, you know, my, my little mortal heart just couldn't 
Yeah, when you get in touch with the amount of suffering, I mean, 50% of people in this country have a serious chronic illness. We don't know that, we don't see that, we don't, but every one of those people has their suffering and some of them have really tremendous suffering. I mean, it's, uh, it's unbearable. You know, I can see in a way why our society wants to shut it out, wants yeah. to not look at illness and, and somehow put people who are ill somehow to, into a different place so that we can all pretend that we're, we're well. Uh, yeah, uh, we're totally. Early there. Yeah, I, I get it. I, I, I get why, why we want to do that. Because it's too much to hold. Any yeah. one person to hold it all. Yep. Yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's, it's threatening. There's nothing more threatening to a person's ego, to a person's self-identity, than the very thought of chronic illness. Mm. Um, and this was one of the painful lessons that we learned out of this, is that, you know, y your friends will support you. Um, the problem is they'll often support you from a distance <laughs> and I had to, you know, go through a bit of a process to find, I guess, forgiveness for that in a certain kind of way. Um, cause on the one hand, it's like people that you've known for decades, you know, might be nowhere to be found. Yeah. Other people who you've never met will show up for you in, in ways you never could have anticipated. You know, we did, when we did this, um, you know, we, we, were, we were lucky. We're very fortunate to be in sort of the integral network that we are. We're very fortunate to have, you know, a friend like Ken Wilber who can write a letter and say, hey, these guys are doing a fundraiser to help pay for their medical expenses. Will you contribute? And that was a very successful um, campaign that we did. And it's been, you know, the, this community showed up for us. Yeah. This community made sure that, you know, we didn't have to worry about bankruptcy or, you know, th issues like that. Just these other issues, these practical everyday um, challenges that, that, you know, surround the, you know, that distract you from what you should really be paying attention to, which is, you know, the health and the wellness of, of you know, whoever is afflicted in your family. Um, so that was an experience to me of how people will show up for you but at a distance. So even though we had this, you know, tremendously successful campaign, um, it was a lonely path. You know, we didn't have many people saying, Hey, you know, Corey, let me take you out for a beer. Yeah. Uh, you know, because people don't want to, it's heavy. I get it. It's heavy. It's hard to take in. It's, you know, we're dealing with this reality 24 hours a day for some people checking in for even 15 minutes might be too much. It's exhausting. Um, I'm sure we were exhausting because it's all we're able to think about and talk about and, um, you know, and get through. Um, so I, 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 that's where my forgiveness comes from. Um, but it's, you know, it's challenging. And I think that people who are walking this path, either, you know, with chronic illness that they're personally dealing with or someone in their family, um, you know, they, they, they maybe should anticipate how their relationships, the dynamics of the relationships might shift a little bit. Um, and, you know, try to, try to, try to find that part of yourself that can understand and, and, and can forgive. Yeah. I think everything shifts. I mean, your relationships shift, even your closest relationship, even your strong relationships, they have to take on a different form. There's a, you know, your spouse and you are now not just thinking about, you know, should we go to the movie tonight? You're, you're having all kinds of discussions about, uh, illness. Your friends, I had a friend I used to walk with every morning, and I knew she didn't even want to ask me how things were. 
because right. there was, you know, and what, but what do you say? And then you keep it in and you say nothing to people and you, you know, you act normal and all that kind of thing. But, but that isn't fully authentic either. So finding that path of how to be yourself. And then when you're, and you're talking about another person, there's also their privacy, what you say That's about right. them. I mean, you carry that with you all the time too. So there's all these balancing acts when you're relating to other people that are um, shifting everything. And I think you brought up another point, which is that everything else also becomes a problem. The, the financial situation, you've got this massive project on your hands. You're researching, you're doing forums, you're getting appointments. Your whole life has shifted. And all you want to do really is pay attention to the particular problem you're dealing with. And you can't because it's now everything else as well. I mean, really, I mean, the most fragile people in our culture get handed, in my, my feeling, the most difficult projects of all. They Absolutely. get a chronic illness and now you've got another whole barrel of things to deal with. It's absolutely true. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And the system is, um, here's another koan. The, yeah. the system is, is simultaneously stacked against you. Um, and like I said, these systems will sustain you. They will, they will, you know, in my case, they will save the life of your daughter. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely not something that you can bring any sort of, uh, you know, black and white kind of framing to, uh, because it's always going to be both. It's always going to be both. The system is going to exhaust you. It's going to crush you. It's going to maybe even, you know, bankrupt you. Um, and that system is there to help you. It's staffed by, you know, modern day miracle makers, um, who really do, you know, the doctors themselves, the, the healers themselves, all they want to do is help you. All they want to do is help you. Um, and they do, you know, such an amazing job of that. Um, yet, you know, finding access to those doctors, this is where, you know, particularly in, in America, this is, you know, this was one of the big deals for us is, um, you know, a, a couple of weeks before she was diagnosed, uh, my company at Interval Life, we went through a transition with insurance companies, um, which means that we were actually uninsured for, I think it was three days. Ooh. Uh, well, we went from sort of uh, employer insurance to private insurance. And if she had been diagnosed in that three-day period, and if Obamacare, this was, the, this was the exact same week that Obamacare was enacted in terms of oh. conditions. Oh. If that wasn't enacted, she would have a pre-existing condition that would follow her for the rest of her life. She would have a $1 million uh, in, you know, cap on the insurance, that she, which, by the way, she's already way over which means if she ever needs another transplant, they wouldn't give it to her. Oh, I mean, no. it's, it's crazy. Um, so, you know, this all landed right, right when those big changes were happening to the, to, the, um, to the sort of, you know, the insurance market itself. And thank God. I mean, thank God. Uh, and, and actually, it's, it, was, it was interesting because a couple years after all this happened, um, about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, our local representative, uh, Michael Bennett, who's otherwise, you know, I, I consider sort of a milk toast kind of Democrat representative. Uh, but he was literally, along with a bunch of other senators and representatives, was um, protesting the repeal of Obamacare uh, in Washington, D.C. on the steps of the Capitol. And he actually held up a giant poster board of Evelyn's face. Oh, he chose her of all of all the stories from Colorado. Mm -hmm. He could have chose whatever for whatever reason he chose 
we chose Evelyn. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, I've never felt more represented, <laughs> directly <laughs> represented, uh, like literally represented uh, by a politician before. And that was, that was cool to see. So, you know, that's my other hope of all of this is that Evie's story, our story walking through this with Evie, um, you know, can be an inspiration, can, can help other families who are dealing with something similar. Um, cause there are, yeah. you know, every, every situation is unique for sure. Even when you're dealing with the same condition, every situation is unique. And there are, I think a few universals here. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I think for me, ultimately the biggest lesson I learned in all of this, you know, I've always, I've always sort of considered myself, you know, spiritual guy or, or what have you. Um, I like to use spiritual language. I like to have spiritual conversations. I, you know, have a hard time practicing as much as I do talking it, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's always been there. And for whatever reason, this experience um, really, all of that went out the window for the most part. I'm so not interested in making an object out of my spirituality anymore of sort of like plunking it down in between me and you and, talking about it. It feels, I don't know, it's more internal now. It's more subtle in a certain kind of way. Um, part of that I'm sure is avoidance and resistance of, of, you know, allowing a spiritual lens to help me again, unfold this even more. But part of it, part of it feels like wisdom or at least a trickle of wisdom where, you know, I came, I think, I think the ultimate paradox for me that this led me to was this deep in my core, this feeling, this access to kind of two sides, two chambers of the same heart. Mm. And there's this one heart that I think, this is, this is I think the universals that we carry with us, um, despite what, you know, our surface challenges are. You know, one of those hearts is a heart that is just permanently and irreparably broken. Yeah. It's just always broken. And, you know, this is the heart that all of our compassion comes from, all of our empathy comes from, all of our um, will to um, affect change in this world and to, you know, leave it a better place. And we found all of this comes from that, that brokenness that, you know, we really are born with. And I think is, at least for me, feels like, I mean, it's, it's there. I mean, it's there in the same way that, you know, atoms and molecules are there. This mm -hmm. heart is, is, is there. It's beating behind everything. But that heart is nestled in another heart, an even bigger heart um, that is just indestructible. It's completely indestructible. Nothing can touch it. Mm. Nothing can even scratch it. Everything just slides off it. Um, all that broken hardness just slides. And these, these two things don't cancel each other out. And you're not supposed to choose, do you know? You're, you're, you're supposed to sort of sit between them and let them work on you, uh, let them work through you. Um, and, and, and that for me feels like just this little glimmer of something, this little peek at something that I, I'll probably spend the rest of my life um, trying to familiarize myself with. Um, because ultimately I think that 
you know, no matter what your sort of spiritual orientation is, or, or if you don't have one at all, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. No matter what work you're doing or not at all, no, no, no matter what you've done to sort of prepare yourself for something like this, nothing prepares you for something like this. And whatever the fruits of your practice may have been, like they'll still help be there. They'll still help you. But, you know, for me, it was really, I don't know. There was, there was something else coming through. There was this sort of, I don't know, when it all falls away, there's this, something else comes online. And it's something that feels a lot more ancient. It's something that feels a lot more, evolutionary it's something that feels a lot more timeless and that's where this i don't know there's this resilience that comes online that allows you to keep just putting one foot in front of the other um and doing what you need to do and paying attention to what you need to pay attention to and that feels older than me that feels mm -hmm. older than my practice that feels like something that i don't know my ancestors gave me or it's 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 some genetic inheritance that goes back billions of years because you know guess what every lifetime in history has dealt with hardship has dealt with mm -hmm. death has dealt with pain and sadness and suffering um and that's our inheritance and it's there and it's there waiting for you it's there waiting for all of us to um just to heart to, to discover and to harness and to i think bring voice to so beautifully said Corey, I just think that's wonderful. And the two hearts, I can feel it. Um, you know, there's this, I was thinking about the word grief, because with a chronic illness, you never stop grieving. Right. People have events in their lives, and they grieve them, and they go on. But with chronic illness, there's, there's no opportunity to do that. The grief, you can't stop and grieve and, and, and finish. So it's always there. There is that heart that is broken, that is grieving all the time. But then there's the one that comes come and I agree with you comes online and it's that that um staying power that being there that presence for me it's presence is being able to sit with suffering which is which is unbearable but this larger heart allows you to do it actually I mean yeah. I don't think you could do it without right. that yeah so it's yeah. yeah put it that way but I just think it's it's totally gorgeous Thank yeah you. it's so beautifully said yeah, no, it's that's beautifully said. That's the again. This is this is why I'm so happy that you're um, that you're doing this program, Lynn, and that you're actually framing it in this way. I think that this is, you know, uh, there's such a temptation to do whatever we can to distract ourselves from this, to avoid, you know, the depths, and that's 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 where all the beauty lives. That's where all the the grace lives. And that that point you made about grief was, you know, that was a big one um, because when you're actually going through it, it's harder to grieve. Mm -hmm. You don't have time. Yes. It, feels, it feels selfish in the moment to grieve, even though it's obviously not. Uh, grief is, is how you're letting this through. It's how you're processing it. But when you're actually in the moment, especially if, that, if it's protracted, you know, I think one of the big issues people likely deal with um, is – is, you know, what do I do with this grief after all of that's done? And that grief feels buried. Like I can't get at it. I can't will it back to the surface. Do you know what I mean? It feels more volcanic in a sense. Um, it's like, you know, and for me, it, <laughs> it manifests when I'm watching TV and a stupid sentimental commercial comes on <laughs> and I just feel this, you know, kind of little stream of sadness going up and down my spine 
And I've just told myself, take every opportunity you can get to, to let this come through um, without embar embarrassment, without, you know, any of that sort of, um, you know, the, the silly stories that we tell ourselves about how to be masculine in the face of impossible grief and, and things like that. And just let yourself cry for stupid reasons. Um, yeah. And yeah, laugh I at Kindness makes me cry. So when really? people are kind, that's, I mean, and, and I think, well, that's so strange, but it's the law. I know Ajashanti once said, um, what is beneath anger is sorrow and beneath sorrow is love. Mm. And I thought that was so beautiful because yes, under the reason for the sorrow is really because of the love. And so kind, I think that's why kindness makes me cry because it's, yeah. it's the love showing up somewhere. Yeah. So, I know what you mean. Yeah, accessing it. I spent years kind of in a state of numbness um, and actually trying to access. I went to a therapist once and she said, well, let a little. I said, if I start crying, I'm not going to stop. I'll cry yep. forever. Yep. So she said, well, let a little out at a time. I thought, yeah. well, yep. I guess that's okay. <laughs> exactly. And, and realize there's a part of yourself way deep down there that is crying forever. Yeah. It's all, always already crying forever. Um, you know, those tears are, are inside you and they're, they're, they're ubiquitous mm -hmm. and you drown in them if, if you, if you let yourself, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's there and we just have to figure out how to sort of align ourselves with that current and let some of it through. Otherwise it, you know, rips us apart because, you know, with, with, with Angie, my fiance and I, you know, again, when you're dealing with this, it's it, not only is it hard to let the grief come through you, but it's hard to it's hard to seek each other out for support because you're both going through the exact same thing, right? You can't, right. you can't lean on a person for support when they're leaning on you. And if either of you changes your posture, even like a millimeter, you're just going to collapse together, yeah. you know? So it's like, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that, that her and I are still dredging up after these experiences together. And, and this is, you know, one of the things, even, even though, like I say, it all kind of went out the window while we're going through it. In retrospect, it's one of the things that makes me deeply grateful for the, for the integral work um, that, you know, that we've been doing, that I've been doing for, you know, the, the, the over a decade before any of this happens. Just the number of things that the, the, the fluency that it gave me with, um, you know, just taking perspectives and uh, trying to identify which perspectives are healthier to take um, than not. Um, you know, how the spiritual practice really, really, really does. When Ken says it hurts you more, bothers you less, one of the most beautiful things he has ever said. And that's, that's exactly right. And that, that to me is a beautiful sort of paraphrasing of those two hearts that I was talking about. The heart that always bleeds always hurts more and the indestructible mountain heart behind it all it, it bothers you less everything slides across it um you know the whole notion of subject becomes object you know i'm a i i i i call myself sort of a hat trick of neuroses that's my <laughs> i've used it in a lot of shows like this you know, i'm an enneagram type four upper left quadrant orienting introvert which means i've I've got it all, man. And you know, the, 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 I'm very susceptible to um, my own chatter, my own mm -hmm. crazy 
you know, sort of chattering in my own ear, um, where I can fall in, I can lapse into these just pits of guilt, self-blame, this kind of poor me, everything in my life is so broken. Why is, you know, why is my life so broken? <laughs> you know, and this just this self-pitying. Um, and I, you know, and I try, I, it takes a lot of forgiveness. I have to forgive myself. I have to give myself space for allowing myself to feel those things. And then I have to find the resiliency to pull myself out because all it's doing is distracting me from what actually needs my attention right now. So the, just the simple capacity to make subject object to, 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 you know, let me step back and look at these thoughts and these scenarios that are playing themselves out in my own mind helps, you know, get a little bit more distance from them and helps them kind of loosen their, their grasp. So again, you can, you can pay attention to what you need to pay attention to. Yeah, I have loved using integral. I mean, integral theory, I, I too, that has been so central to me. That's why I'm teaching it in, in this course, because it's so, I mean, it helps people organize their thinking. There's just an enormous jumble um, going on. And if you can organize it in some way, you can step back and you say, oh, this is over here, and this is how I need to deal with this, and, and this is how I need to deal with that. And then you brought up, you know, issues of guilt and despair, and, and that's shadow work. Yep. We can do that shadow work. We can go in there and we can, I mean, I carried a lot of guilt for a long time. I didn't cause this, but you know, somehow as a parent, you feel like I should have prevented my child from going through this. And so this guilt is there and to be able to get in there and, and really release that. I mean, I could say at this point, I have, I don't feel guilty anymore. Yeah. Uh, no, what a miracle. It doesn't mean I'm any less involved. It doesn't mean I don't care, but I don't carry that guilt. And integral, all, so many aspects of integral have helped me move through this and, and have deepened it, have, have given me like metaphors and pictures and quotes like the one you had as a way of defining my experience that I, I couldn't articulate. When I first found Ken's work, I, I was just over the top. I thought, oh my God, here's somebody who actually says what I know to be true that I couldn't put in words. So, yeah. yeah, it's well, Lynn, it's amazing because even just hearing you say, you know, and sort of speak to your own story and just say, I don't feel guilt anymore. You know, I feel that in my own body, just hearing you say that it's like this, this cool air comes through my heart. It's just lightning. It's, you know, because, because again, when you're in the process of this and when, when you can't blame anything, when I can't say, Oh, it's my genetics when you can't say, oh, it's the fracking that they're doing in my state or any number of environmental talks, when you can't point the blame at anything, it's so much easier to blame yourself. Yes. It brings that simplicity. It's like, well, at least I've got something to hate right now. Yeah. If that thing is me, it gives me something to push against here. And when you don't have that, that sort of fixation, that, that thing, that note of... of, of of guilt and blame and just something to, to, you know, pour all of this resentment onto it, it, it eats you alive. And so it's easier to blame yourself than it is to, to remain present. Uh, it's a, coping, it's actually a coping mechanism. It makes you feel better to blame yourself than to just be like, well, nothing, nothing could, you know, have prevented this. It's um, better to have something than to, because you have no control. Exactly. When you're, nobody's to blame. There's nobody who's in control. And that's terrifying. That's right. 
Oh. In the shadow work, you know, I think it goes both ways because it, it does, like you say, it helps you, it helps you by making these kind of subjects into object and just like, I'm going to watch the story here and kind of see how it plays out. And then I'm going to try to, you know, interface with it a little bit more. The other side of those, of those biases in these, in these shadows is, is what you're doing with the trauma, what you're doing after the trauma. So I already see in so many ways, all the ways I want to overcompensate for the trauma that our family endured together. I see all the ways I want to keep my kid in bubble wrap because I don't ever want something bad to happen to her again. You know what I mean? I can see how sort of overbearingly emotional I can be with her. And I have to remind myself, you know, like she, she, she needs more than that too. Um, So it helps, you know, really keep an eye on, Exactly that, those overcompensations that, you know, when I, when I sort of correct the steering too far in another direction, um, you know, I, th- the last thing I want is for this story to define who she is. And that's where I have to be careful. That's where I have to be careful in how I talk to her about this and sort of the importance that I place about this. You know, this is a detail of her story. She is so much more than this trauma and in fact most of this trauma i mean she's inheriting it but again it all happened before she even started forming memories so most of this it's like it's like when your dog loses a leg the next month your dog really doesn't give a shit it's it's the dog owners who are like (laughs) that trauma and sadness with them all you know it's it's not to say this isn't affecting her and that this won't have profound implications for her as she continues to mature it clearly will but in terms of how it's manifesting on the surface this is our trauma and I need to do everything I can to prevent myself from reinforcing her trauma with my own. Um, yeah. And what you're bringing up is the meaning that we give to this. Totally. I mean, and that's one of the things I'm really interested in doing with illness is giving new meaning to it. Illness is a life path. It's a path that brings forth all these things we've been talking about. It's so valuable. It's just as valuable as somebody going to an office and shuffling papers and getting a watch at the end of 40 years. I mean, why, why isn't illness a really seriously valuable path to go down yep. and to learn from? There's, there's times, Lynn, where I, you know, I, I often feel like, uh, at least in American culture, as much as we like to fetishize things like guns and violence and death and all that, to me, that's a symptom of, you know, it feels to me like oftentimes in American culture, we're like, we're like in the story of the Buddha, we're, we're still in that like first part of the Buddha story where we're still in the palace, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, the king is doing everything he can to hide suffering and impermanence and illness. Everything in our culture is a defense mechanism to avoid having to think about these things because it, it's uncomfortable. And we really value comfort in this culture. Um, you know, it's the it's, it's, same with food. We never have to see, you know, the animals that we eat being killed. In fact, we don't even have to think of them as animals because we buy them in the grocery store, you know, in a cellophane wrapper, um, you know, and bring it home and cook it up. And you don't even have to really acknowledge that this was a thing that was alive, um, which you know, it's a funny metaphor because our doctors told us when Evie's liver arrived, he compared it to a piece of meat that you'd see in a supermarket. He's like, that's what exactly what it looks like. It's a pink piece of meat and it could be wrapped in cellophane and, you know, put right there. But we're so disconnected from, uh, you know, the, 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 the anguish and the suffering and the impermanence of it all 
that when it actually manifests again in our own lives or in the people around us, we have an entire culture here to support us in pushing that away. Yeah, exactly. When we really should be, should be welcoming it. I mean, I think it goes back and we probably better stop. (laughs) I could talk to you all day. I don't get off on a chance to talk to people in the, in this situation, but it's sort of the spirituality of everything that comes up here. I I think, you know, you say you're not on, you know, your spiritual path has changed and it's something, but you're one of the most spiritual people I know. And I think it is, it's about grief. It's about forgiveness. It's about dealing with insurance companies. It's about all of these things. And all of that is spirituality. And, And it all comes, it all comes out. We have no choice when we're facing something like this. Yeah. Well, I, I, I thank you for your warm words. And I, and, I, and I thank you for the opportunity to, you know, to tell this story. Um, I, love, I, I love talking about my daughter. Um, so, you know, thank you. And this, this was a nice opportunity for me to, um, you know, sit back and, and, and just reflect on some of the deeper currents um, that we faced over the last several years, which, again, when you're in it, you don't, you don't often find those opportunities to just be like, what am I learning here? You know, um, this was a really nice invitation to, to reflect. And um, again, my, my ultimate hope here is that any of this can be useful. I don't know, valuable um, to other people who are dealing with something similar. You're, you're definitely not alone. Um, you will find those support networks uh, you will find those people who are capable of just deep empathy, people like Lynn, um, who are just capable of actually seeing you and acknowledging the struggles and the challenges and the fear and, the you know, oftentimes the, the impossible sadness that comes with the very worst things imaginable happening to you. Um, there's, there's space for it all. Um, so, Lynn, I, want, I just, you know, thank you. Oh, thank you, Corey. You've been wonderful. I so much appreciate it. I do, too. Yeah, thanks.